So Romans 9 is where we are this morning. We're um, looking particularly at uh, the first six verses, but we will uh, be referring to other parts of that passage that I read earlier. Romans 9 from, from verse 1. Um, you have to tread carefully when you get to Romans 9, um, because Romans 9 and beyond speaks about God's dealings with the people of Israel. And people have strong views about what they think God is doing with the people of Israel. Um, people who believe the Bible is God's word differ on what God is doing with Israel. Well, it's not my purpose today to get into that debate, which may be a disappointment to some. <laughs> Um, and a relief to others. Uh, rather, this morning, we're going to look at Paul. We're going to look at Paul. And we're going to look particularly at Paul's heart. Paul's heart. The heart of an evangelist. And we're going to compare Paul to us. And then we're going to look at Jesus. So we're going to look at Paul, ourselves, and then we're going to look at Jesus. And I want us to do that by looking at three words this morning. Three words. Emotion, action, expectation. Emotion, first of all, verse 1 and 2. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart emotion secondly action verse 3 for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites action and thirdly expectation verse 6 but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It is not that the word of God has failed. Expectation. Emotion. Action. Expectation. So first then, let's look at emotion. Emotion and Paul's great sorrow. He begins chapter 9. Um, with some very powerful words. And what he's saying is that whatever is coming next, I want you to know I mean it. I want you to know I am serious. I tell the truth in Christ, he says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is preparing us to hear something extremely important. He wants us to know that he means it. And he wants us to understand that what he's about to say next moves him to his very core. Verse 2. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow, continual grief, unceasing anguish. It is translated elsewhere. These are strong emotions, aren't they? Strong emotions. 
particularly when you call upon the Holy Spirit as your witness to the fact that these things are true. Not words you would use lightly. Great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. And Paul's sorrow was that despite the great privileges of the people of Israel, they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Paul goes through these privileges in verse 4. Their adoption to sonship. The fact that God had called them out of all the nations of the world. He had called them to be his children, his family. They were called and adopted as sons. Theirs was the divine glory. They'd seen God's glory in the tabernacle, in the temple. God displaying his glory in miracles of deliverance for them again and again and again. Theirs was the law, unique among all peoples of the world. God had given this people his law, his instructions, as we were thinking earlier. This is how to live. No other nation had that, just the people of Israel. Theirs were the covenants. The covenants, God had committed himself to them, legally. He'd signed a contract. You are my people. I am your God. We're together. Theirs were the covenants. Theirs was the temple worship. Again, uniquely among all the nations, God had said, here is where you will find me. Here is where you come to worship me. Here, in the temple. Theirs were the promises the promises that God had given. God had revealed his purpose to them. Through them, according to the flesh, was the ancestry of Jesus himself, the Messiah. They could trace the ancestry of God's Saviour back through the nation of Israel. What privileges this people had. They had all of this, all of this, and yet they rejected Jesus. They turned away. And it moves Paul. It moves him. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. There's a sense of tragedy, isn't there, when you consider squandered talent. People who have great ability and waste it. People of a certain generation might think of George Best fabulously gifted footballer who threw it away squandered his talent and younger people might think of Paul Pogba perhaps coming to Manchester United returning as a hero never worked out for whatever reason never worked out and leaves the club there's a sense of disappointment certainly tragedy perhaps And you feel for parents, don't you? Who bring their children up well, or try to bring their children up well, and yet find them going off the rails. Not spoiling them, not being reckless with them, but giving them the very best start in life, and yet the child still goes off the rails. Sense of waste, isn't there? Well, God had prepared his people for the coming of his son and they had rejected him they had turned away 
from him. And you can imagine why Paul was so full of sadness. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Emotion. I wonder if we get sad when we see unbelief. I wonder if we get sad when we see people people turning away from God. Or I wonder if we get angry. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to get frustrated when we look at our society and see how far it has gone from the Lord. It's easy to get frustrated. And Paul might have been excused for being angry, mightn't he? How can they have not seen? God has given them all of this and they've thrown it away. You can imagine why Paul might have been angry, but he wasn't angry. He was sad. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. A couple of months ago, my wife and I were in London and we were coming home and you do what you do, you get your phone out and you look on Google Maps how to get home and Google Maps comes up with the answer. Down New Bond Street, turn right into Piccadilly, up to Green Park Tube, Jubilee Line, to Lo- you, you, you're interested in this aren't you? <laughs> Jubilee Line. Jubilee Line to London Bridge and then home. So that's what we did. New Bond Street, turn right into Piccadilly and straight into the 50th Gay Pride March walking down Piccadilly. It It felt a bit like a metaphor of swimming against the tide. Now, as people celebrated their homosexuality, or as they celebrated with others their homosexuality, I would like to tell you that my overriding emotion was one of compassion, was one of sadness, was one of loving concern. I would like to tell you that my overriding thought was love the sinner, hate the sin. I would love to be able to tell you that the riot of colour, the pinks, the fluorescents, the rainbows and the thumping of the music provoked feelings of compassion within me. It should have done, but it did not. And perhaps that's not new, because when Jesus was Uh, turned away when a Samaritan village refused to welcome Jesus. James and John said to him, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And of course Jesus rebukes them. So perhaps my feelings were not new, but they certainly were not right. And compare them to Paul. I have great sorrow and continual grief, unceasing anguish in my heart. When we see the state of our 
society, our country today, how do we respond? What is our emotion? Is it the fire and brimstone of James and John, or is it the great sorrow and continual grief of Paul? What do we feel? What should we feel? So if we feel that urge welling up within us to call down fire from heaven to consume them, if that is the case, then what is the answer? What is the answer? Is the answer to try to be more loving, to stir ourselves up to love, to try harder, or is it to look to our Saviour, to the one who had compassion on us, to the one who looked upon us and who died to save us, the one who rescued us from the same fire and brimstone that we might want to call down upon others. The answer is surely to look to Jesus and to ask Jesus to give us the same compassion for the lost that he had. What did Jesus do when he saw the unbelief of the people? He wept. He wept. Standing over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, we read, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, says Jesus, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The compassion of Jesus. We need to look to Jesus, the one who, even as they crucified, prays, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Now, we will never truly represent Jesus in our world unless we have his heart. We can never claim to represent Jesus in the world until we have his compassion for the lost, until we love people first. And if we are calling down fire from heaven to consume them, that is simply evidence that we don't. If we are calling down fire from heaven to consume those who sin, even those who sin sin in the most flagrant ways, then it betrays the fact that we do not have the heart of Jesus. So first, emotion. Emotion. Paul was full of great sorrow and continual grief. Jesus had a heart of compassion for the lost. For you and for me, we too need to be more like Paul and more like Jesus. Let us ask Jesus to give us his heart for the lost. So first, then, emotion. Secondly, action. Action. Verse 3. Romans 9, verse 3. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul wishes that he would be cursed. 
in order that his brothers, the Israelites, might be saved. That's, that's what he's saying. Cursed is, um, the Greek word is anathema. Anathema. And it's a biblical word. It describes something that is handed over by God to destruction. Complete destruction. So when the people of God in the Old Testament took, took a city, God would often say it is devoted to destruction. Destroy everything. Anathema. It is cursed. And Paul declares that if it were possible, he would change places with the people of Israel. He would be cursed in order that they might be saved. Paul is saying, I would give up my salvation in order that my brothers and sisters, the people of Israel, might be saved. Now that is a remarkable statement. It's an astonishing statement for two reasons. First, it's astonishing when you consider the context in which Paul says it. Because he has just penned some of the most comforting words that Christians can ever turn to in moments of doubt, in moments of despair. He's just written chapter 3, verse 38 and 39. He has just written, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can anything, anywhere, separate me from the love of Jesus Christ? No. But you know what? I wish it were true. I wish it were true. I wish, if it were possible, I could be cursed in order for the sake of the people of Israel. What an astonishing thing to say. Remarkable. And the second reason it's remarkable is when you consider who the people of Israel were, what they had done to Paul. He was hated by his own people, hated by them. For, for the Jews, Paul was public enemy number one. He was the arch-traitor. He was the one who was persecuting the church. He was the one who was zealous for Judaism. He was the one who was trying to put an end to this heretical sect. And then what do they hear? He's been converted. Converted? And, and what? Planting churches? And successfully? No, they, they need to put an end to this. And so they chase him halfway around Europe, don't they? Seeking to kill him. Six, sorry, five times... I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, says Paul in 2 Corinthians. They wanted to shut him up. And so it would be perfectly understandable for Paul to think, well, you know, a plague on their house. But no. He says, I wish I were cut off. I wish I was cursed in order that these people might be saved. And they're not just empty words. Because although, although Paul knew he couldn't lose his salvation, he was prepared to lose his life. He was prepared to lose his life. Acts chapter 21. We read this of Paul. Acts 21 and verse 
13, Paul, they, they, they plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am willing to die. I may not lose my salvation, but I am willing to die. I wonder what extent we would, we would go to swap places with someone else. Perhaps the nearest thing we can think about, we, we can equate it to, is when a loved one is ill. And, and we might think, well, I wish I were ill instead of my loved one. I wish I was the one in pain and, and they were well. We might feel that we would swap places. But I wonder to what extent we would want to swap places with the lost, with the lost, with sinners. Not good people, not good people, as Paul reminds us in Romans 5, verse 17. Sorry, verse verse 7, Romans 5, 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. Yes, we might be prepared to die for a good man, for a righteous man. But for sinners, would we die for sinners? Would we swap place with sinners? Would we swap places with those on the pride march? We often bemoan the state of our country, don't we? But what do we do about it? What do we do about it? We pray, good. That's more than most. But what do we do? Paul was prepared to put himself in harm's way. I'm prepared to go to Jerusalem and even to die. He was prepared to put himself in harm's way. So often we are scared even to speak, to raise our voice. And I'm not talking about tackling the pride marchers in London who may have some issue with us, but we're often scared to speak with those who like us, with our friends and our families and our work colleagues and our neighbours, people with whom we actually have some kind of good relationship. We're so often frightened to speak, aren't we? We need to crawl before we can sprint, don't we? But we need the courage of Paul to act. I am prepared even to go to Jerusalem to die. So what's the answer? Is it again to try harder, to try and be braver? Or is it to look to Jesus again, to look to our Saviour, to look to Jesus who is the one who can help us? Because while Paul wished he could be a curse, if it were possible, I might become a curse. While Paul wished it were possible, Jesus did become a curse for us. Jesus did. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That is the cross. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse 
for us. Paul wishes he could be cut off. Jesus was cut off. And if we go back to Romans 5, what does Paul say? Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. Not when we were righteous, not when we were good, but when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ became a curse for us, for sinners. We will never truly represent Jesus in this world unless we are prepared to die for him. Perhaps not physically, perhaps not physically, but certainly die to ourselves. Carry our cross. Carry our cross and die to ourselves. Die to the feelings of rejection. Die to feelings of wanting to be liked. Die to embarrassment. Die to pride. We need to die to these things so that we might act, that we might speak, that we might preach the gospel and tell others about Jesus. So first, emotion. We need to have Jesus' heart. Secondly, action. We too need to act. We need to die to ourselves and we need to act. Third, we see expectation. We see expectation. Paul opens chapter 9, doesn't he, by declaring his great sorrow and continual grief. I have great sorrow, continual grief that that, that Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So he is expressing this deep emotion. And yet, and yet, Paul is not without hope. Paul is not without hope. In verses 7 through to 13, Paul goes through the calling of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And his point is clear in verse 11. God has elected some. God has elected some. God has a purpose in election. And what Paul is saying is that not every physical child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is a spiritual child of Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so it is that he goes through this brief history showing that it is not every child of Abraham who, who is called by God. Most people, he says, don't believe. Most of the Israelites don't believe. But some do. Some do. The spiritual children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob do believe. And so it is, he says in verse 6, the word of God has not failed. Verse 6, he says, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It is still effective. It is still active. It has not failed, and nor will it fail. Nor will it fail. Paul declares confidently, right at the beginning of his uh, letter, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 
He describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The power of God for salvation. I have confidence in this gospel, says Paul. It has not failed. Because whilst many don't believe, whilst most don't believe, even in the people of Israel, there are some who do. There are some who are called. God has a purpose in election. Now when we think about the work that we do as churches, our evangelism, our personal witness, all the the effort and the prayer and the planning that goes into evangelistic efforts of one sort or another. And when we consider the fruit that comes from them, such small returns, what is our response? Do we think the word of God God has failed? Do we think the word of God has lost its power? Do we think the word of God does not work anymore in this sophisticated society that we live in? Do we think man is too wise for the gospel these days? Or too foolish? Or too sinful? People today believe Professor Brian Cox, don't they? David Attenborough, these great titans of television. And and people believe them. And how does the gospel compete against the television and the BBC? Well, I'm being unfair on the BBC. But, you know, how 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 does the gospel compete in this media-savvy age? Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Are we ashamed of it? Are we slow to speak? Well, don't be. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Because despite all the evidence to the contrary, the word of God has not failed, nor will it fail. The unbelief of most is not inconsistent with the power of the gospel to save some. And it has always been that way. Always been that way. That's what Paul is saying in verses 6 through to 13. The word of God has not failed because it was only meant for the true children of Israel. Abraham's true spiritual seed. It has not failed them. It has not failed us. We are the children of Abraham today because the power of the gospel is still there. Still there to save. So here is Paul's own answer to his own unceasing anguish, his great sorrow and continual grief. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And so it is that the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are here this morning. We are the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And so it is that the children of the spiritual children of Abraham are out there as well. People who have been chosen but not yet called in time. Elected by God but not yet called in time. They 
are the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And what does Isaiah say? In chapter 53 and verse 10, he says, He will see his offspring. He will see his offspring. So we're not just sand, we're not just stars, we're the very offspring of Jesus Christ, his children. And out there, even now, are the children of Jesus Christ, the offspring of Jesus Christ, chosen by God in eternity, but not yet called in time. They're out there because God's word will not fail. The word of God has not taken no effect. The word of God, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. In the book of Revelation, we read chapter 7, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9, we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. The word is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It has. It is. It will in the future. Expectation. That was Paul's expectation. May it be our expectation. Jesus said, I will build my church. Let's believe it. So, we've seen Paul's emotion. We've seen Christ's emotion, their heart for the lost. May we share that emotion, that same heart of compassion for the lost, that great sorrow, that continual grief for the lost. We've seen Paul's action, how he was prepared to die for the gospel. We've seen Christ's action, how he did die for the lost. May we act too. May we die to ourselves, die to pride, die to embarrassment, die to the fear of rejection. And may God grant us the courage to act and tell people about Jesus. And finally, we've seen Paul's expectation. The word of God has not failed. We've seen Christ's expectation. I will build my church. May we believe that too. May we have a confident expectation that the word of God has not failed. It is the power of God for salvation. Amen. So emotion, action, expectation. May God change us. Change us. May he use us. May he bless us.